uh, James chapter 4, and this morning we're just going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 3. So James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not ask, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we uh, come to this passage, as we return to our study in the book of James after a long break, we ask that you would uh, be with us and that you would give wisdom and insight. And that as your word goes forth in the power of your spirit, we pray that it would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about peace. First and foremost, it's about securing peace and reconciliation between God and man. Because of uh, Adam's sin, we are all born enemies of God and rebellion against him. Peace and reconciliation, though, was accomplished through the once-for-all perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself uh, to pay the penalty for our sin and remove that, uh, that wedge, that, that divider that was, had separated us from God. But flowing out of that great peace that the gospel has brought to us, the gospel always also brings peace between man and man. See, when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, not only was their relationship with God disrupted, but also their relationship with one another. But through the good news of the gospel that Jesus accomplished, peace and reconciliation with others is now made possible. Living in peace with one another and sowing the fruit of righteousness and peace is what we're called to do in Christ Jesus. And James reminded us, uh, reminded us of this back in chapter 3. You see, to those whom James is writing, this peace is being disturbed. And so as we come to chapter 4, we're going to see James addressing the various conflicts that have arisen in the church and that are causing divisions and strife where peace and unity ought to be reigning. Now, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, as we consider these conflicts, we'll see how these ought to be resolved. But in our passage of this morning, James begins by calling attention to the root of the problem, and he begins to point to the path that will lead to ultimate restoration. First, I want to back up and consider how things ought to be in the church. 
You see, if the gospel is all about peace, well, then certainly the church, which is founded on the gospel, should be marked by peace and unity. And this peace and unity is is most clearly demonstrated when Christians fulfill the two great love commands which Jesus gives that summarize the whole moral law of God. That we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if we're committed to loving God and seeking to praise Him first and foremost, and if we strive faithfully to love our neighbor, putting their needs and their interests above our own, well, then peace will grow and abound. This, again, was the point that James made back in chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here, James is implying that we're to be peacemakers. And that as we sow seeds of peace and righteousness uh, in peace, well, then peace and righteousness will abound even more. Not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of those around us. And the blessing of peace and righteousness that that were enjoyed by the early church was great. And we catch glimpses of this uh, in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And so, for example, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read this, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And then a little bit later in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we read this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And so we see that peace, unity, and a pervasive sense of love for one another demonstrated through sharing and and seeing that all those who had need were served is what marked the young church. This peaceful environment, though, wasn't imposed upon them but it simply grew out of their desire to love God and to love their neighbor. What a great challenge for us in the church today. To be so committed to loving the Lord and to loving our neighbors that peace and unity prevails in the church, with one another, and in how we would live our lives. In fact... This, it was this love, peace, and unity that drew many uh, on, uh, on, who were on the outside to, uh, to actually stop and, and listen to the message that was being proclaimed in these gatherings of believers. They came and they listened to the gospel. They listened to what had brought about this transformation in the lives of these people. And so every day, new members were being added to their number. 
Well, this then brings to fulfillment the words of Jesus back in John 13, verse 35, when Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That love for one another was evident to others. And they knew that these were disciples of Jesus. And it sparked their interest, and they also were drawn in. Brothers and sisters, this is how it ought to be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But sadly, the reality is often much different. In fact, it didn't take long for the church in the Acts to begin to have problems. In Acts chapter 5, we read of the account of Ananias and Sapphira, who were members of the church. They were members of this body, and yet their selfishness led them to lie to the apostles, and ultimately they lied to God Himself. And then in chapter 6, a a dispute ultimately rooted in mistrust and bigotry arises concerning the ministry to, uh, to widows. And this was only the beginning. Things would only get worse. So that by the time that James writes this letter, which again is not far removed from those early chapters in Acts, he says here in verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? There's little peace to be found in the church. Again, no particularly the strong language that he uses here, wars and fights among you. These weren't mere civil disagreements that they were having. They were knock-down, drag-out fights, certainly with words and attitudes, if not literally with fists and punches. James has already introduced some of these conflicts. Remember, there was a conflict between believers, who uh, the rich believers and those who are poor, with the rich uh, expressing a sense of entitlement. And then, of course, there were those who were in between, that would show favoritism to the rich over their poor brethren. And in chapter 3, James spoke of those who were scrambling to become teachers in the church, seeing this as a prized and honored position. And the picture we get there is that, that they were trampling upon others because they so desired the honor of men. Some of the brethren would even praise God one moment and would then turn around and curse their brother the next. And James has just warned before this about those filled with the wisdom of the world, where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are the highest, or we should say the lowest values. As James continues his description of these conflicts throughout chapter 4, we'll see that his descriptions only get more graphic. And so the church was riddled with conflict. And again, we see this throughout the rest of the New Testament, and especially when we think of the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus, were especially known for as being troubled churches. And this turbulence continued, sometimes more and sometimes less, throughout the entire history of the church, even up to where we are in the church today. I always find it interesting that some... A pine for the days. Uh, if we could just go back to the New Testament church and we return there, then we could, uh, things would be so much better. But friends, if you look around in many ways, we're already there. And it's not a good thing. 
Consider divisions in the strife that divide the universal body of Christ into different groups and denominations. Now, granted, uh, some, some of this is, is for good reason, and we ought to do so. Because we know that true peace and unity cannot be established when the truth is compromised. So it can only, uh, peace and unity can only be built around the uncompromised truth. And those that compromise the truth, well, then we must separate ourselves from them. And so some of these divisions are certainly necessary. But even when they're not, we look around and we still fall way short of the prayer of Jesus that believers would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And then you add to the mix the conflict and strife even within denominations, right? Even within particular congregations of God's people. In fact, it only gets worse. That when those who are closest to us are looked upon with suspicion, envy, or even disgust. And such conflict is, is so common and widespread that it's often even joked about. Hey, people, uh, you often hear people talk about uh, divisive congregational meetings. Right? When it's time to have the congregational meeting, it's like, okay, well, there's, there's going to be some kind of division. You hear about churches you know, splitting over the color of the carpet. It's a, again, a kind of a joke. I don't know if there's actually been any churches. Maybe there has. That is split over what color the carpet's going to be in the, in, uh, throughout the building. But we joke about it. We joke about divisions in the church. And of course, even in our own circles, what's more common is division, division over minor points of doctrine and practice. And so it's tragic. And yet, often this is the reality that exists in many churches. But this doesn't have to be. Again, throughout chapter 4, James will use some strong language to chastise these believers. And yes, we remember that he's writing to believers, and he's already spoken very strongly to them. But like our Heavenly Father who chastises those whom he loves, James loves these people. And he chastises them strongly to show them that this doesn't have to be the way. That it can indeed be different. And to help them see this, he now seeks to pinpoint the source of the problem and then show them the help that is available. Well, in the first part of verse 1, James had asked a question. But note he doesn't give them a chance to respond, likely because he knows that there's going to be blame shifting and, and accusing of fingers being pointed uh, across the room at someone else. Now James answers his own question with another question, and one that has just one obvious answer. Where do these wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Indeed they do. You see, to find the source of the problem that's causing the disruption of peace among them, all they need to do is actually look in the mirror and examine their own hearts 
and see the battle that wages within them. The desire for pleasure that James speaks of are the sinful desires and thoughts that rage in the human heart. Now from the the Greek word for pleasures here, we get the word hedonism. When you think of hedonism, we think of the, the pursuit of pleasure above all things. Even the pursuit of pleasure to utter destruction. Fulfilling their own needs and desires is their first goal. Looking out for number one and only looking out for number one. Self-fulfillment, selfishness, self-worship and idolatry. This is the cause of disruption. But again, these are believers in Christ. At least as far as James can know a person's heart, they have professed faith in Jesus and claim to be Christians. They've been redeemed. They've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And yet there's a war going on within them. Indeed, the same war that continues to carry on in each of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. It's the battle we engage in each and every day against the remnant of the sin nature that still resides in us. In Christ, we're truly saved and redeemed and we have no condemnation in Christ. We've even been transformed and changed into new and living creatures. But we acknowledge that we're not perfect in holiness. We're not perfect in righteousness. We are at best works in progress by God's grace. And by God's grace, we will ultimately get to that point. But we're not yet there. Not now in this life. Now we struggle and fight. Now we wage a war within us. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul speaks of in in Romans chapter 7. Beginning at verse 19, Paul says, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The good news is, again, this is Paul describing his own struggle and describing our struggle. Right? That what we want to do, we don't do. And that what we don't want to do is exactly what we do. But there's good news to be found here. And the good news is this. You see, as long as we're actively engaging in this battle and fighting this war within, we're actually doing well. The struggle is itself a sign of, of life in us. It's a sign that the Spirit of God is graciously working in us and helping us to to put to death the old man of sin and enabling us to put on the new man in Christ. You see, it's when we stop struggling, when we stop fighting sin, 
And when we simply just give up and give in to temptation, making peace with our wretched sinfulness, that we find ourselves in trouble. And as those to whom James was writing are finding out, this trouble is not only for themselves, but also for those who are around them. You see, this, as this war that rages within, it's, if it's not kept under control, right? if we simply give in and give ourselves over to our sinful desires and seek to serve ourselves and to fulfill our own pleasures, well, then it's not going to take long for this then to spill out from our hearts into our speech and into our actions. And we saw this earlier back in chapter 3 with regards to the tongue. Right, the unbridled, untamed tongue opens a window to a person's heart and exposes the ugly truth for all to see. The garbage in the heart comes out of the mouth. And remember that the tongue was a key battleground. And James said if one could control the tongue, well then he's perfect and able to control the whole body. But you see, if the tongue is lost... Actions of the rest of the body are also let loose. And again, the garbage of the heart will come out not only in our speech, but also in our actions. In actions that affect not just ourselves, but all those around us. Even those who are in the body of Christ. James, again, uses strong graphic language to make his point here. And verse part of verse 2, he says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. They don't get what they want. They do whatever they can to get it. Arguing over it, fighting for it, stealing it, and even committing murder to get it. Yes, murder. Now, we don't know whether James is speaking literally or metaphorically. If literally, well, then obviously the problems were much more worse than we could possibly imagine. And this is certainly possible. Unrestrained sinful desires are capable of anything. But it's most likely that James is speaking metaphorically. Metaphorically in the sense that they were committing murder in their hearts because of the anger and hatred that they were expressing toward their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle John, who echoes the teaching of Jesus, says very clearly in 1 John 3, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And again, Jesus makes that connection that hatred is... Murder in the committing murder in the heart. When you're envious of your brother or sister, when you hold a, a bitter grudge, when you speak harsh and unkind words, when you gossip or deceive, when you curse and condemn unjustly, you are murdering in your heart one for whom Christ died. Brothers and sisters, it ought not to be this way in the body of Christ. The war. That we each must engage in every day within us. 
The war against a lack of contentment, envy, jealousy, suspicion, selfish ambition, anger, bitterness, and pride. If we stop fighting these inner battles, if we stop relying on the grace of God to put the old sin to death, then these will eventually pour out of our hearts in both word and deed, endangering ourselves and disturbing the peace and unity of the body of Christ. And that's exactly what James is referring to here. How is peace then restored? He's identified that it's there, that there's disruption. He's identified the source of it. How is it restored? Well, Lord willing, over the next several weeks, we'll consider uh, the need for God's grace in our lives to help us as we uh, need to daily submit ourselves to the revealed will of God. But as James shows here in verses 2 and 3, that prayer is, is the best place to start. Prayer is simply talking to God. Right? It's simple exercise and yet a most precious gift that God gives to us to strengthen and help us in our time of need, especially as we fight these battles within and seek to keep the peace in the body of Christ. But it's evident to James that those to whom he was writing were not praying. Second part of verse 2, he says, Yet you do not have, because you do not ask. See, help was there. Help was ready to be extended. A a lifeline that could be uh, tapped into to rescue them, but they weren't using it. And what's more, they likely knew it was there the whole time. But you see, in the midst of their guilt and shame, for failing to press on in the battle within, they refused to reach out to God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, isn't this sometimes how we deal with our sin? Or more accurately, how we refuse to deal with our sin? We know God is displeased with our sin. We know that we've failed, that we've uh, sinned against the most holy God, that we've messed up, that we've made many mistakes. We know that we have hurt others, even dearly beloved ones, family members, friends, fellow believers, because of our sin. We know we're in need of God's help and forgiveness. And yet, ironically, it's our pride that holds us back. Our pride that doesn't want our guilt and shame exposed before God that keeps us from humbling ourselves and doing the very thing that he's given to us to seek him out when we're in need of help. Our pride keeps us from praying, keeps us from God's forgiveness and holds us in bondage to sin. It's self-defeating. And we can quickly see how things could spiral out of control and get worse, even much worse. When we lose the battle inside, or when we lash out at others on the outside with sinful words or actions, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. For we have that great promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, beloved of God, seek the Lord in prayer. But there was another problem. 
not only were they not praying, but when they did pray, they weren't praying properly. And so they were still not receiving what they truly needed. We see this in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. They ask amiss, that is, with the wrong motives. Their motives and reasons for prayer are way off. They weren't seeking grace, mercy, and forgiveness. They weren't seeking peace and reconciliation with God and their brothers and sisters in Christ. No, still ruled by their selfish desires, they asked for the satisfaction of their own sinful pleasures. Now this is a great perversion of prayer. Imagine the audacity of asking God to fulfill all our sinful pleasures. To give us what belongs to someone else. To help us trample over our brothers and sisters in Christ. To cover over our lies, our deceit, our jealousy and bitterness so people will think well of us. To lead us into even greater sin and temptation. Now we may not be so bold and callous in our prayers to actually ask the Lord for these things. But friends, how often are our prayers focused on our own selfish wants and needs? To the neglect of the needs and concerns of others. See, we sometimes treat God as if he was this great ATM machine that will give us whatever we want, whenever we want it, for whatever reason we could want it. But such prayers are misguided. And they're really no prayers at all. And God doesn't hear them or answer them. They don't please and honor him. And they don't further the purpose that we've been called to fulfill that he has placed upon us. Remember back in James 1, James urged that we should pray for wisdom. But when we ask, we shouldn't doubt. Otherwise, we shouldn't expect any answer. Well, the same is true here. If we ask with improper and selfish and pure motives, well, we shouldn't expect God to answer us. Because he won't. So what then is the proper way we should pray then? Well, we remember that Jesus gave his, gave his disciples a model to follow. Matthew 6, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples, not they, that they would necessarily uh, pray this prayer word for word, what we call the Lord's Prayer, as if it were some kind of magical incantation. But no, he says that they ought to pray in a similar manner. And so we're to pray giving thanks to God for all that he has given to us, praying for his name to be made holy, magnified, and glorified. And so right there, the prayer starts off not focused upon us, but upon God, upon someone else. The model that Jesus has given is to right away take the focus off of ourselves. We're to give thanks for daily provision and seek it from, from the Lord's hand. We're to pray and confess our sin, seeking His grace and mercy for forgiveness. We're to pray that evil and sin would be put away from us. 
And that we would be strengthened to stand against temptation. We're to pray for the glory of God's kingdom to come and for His will. Not our will, but God's most holy and perfect will to be done in our lives and throughout all the earth, even as it is done in heaven. All this we're to pray and ask in Jesus' name. This is the proper way to pray. And so it's through prayer then that we begin to restore peace and reconciliation between us and God. To restore peace within ourselves and with our fellow believers in Christ. And so the responsibility to keep the peace in the church belongs to each and every one of us. As we keep our own hearts in check and daily rely on the grace and strength the Lord provides us. Again, wage that war against sin and temptation that takes place inside us. Beloved of God, you can't do this, though, without first believing and confessing the gospel peace that has been secured for you through Jesus Christ. For true, everlasting peace can only be found in Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Truly, by God's grace, trust in Christ. Pursue this peace that he has secured. And may God truly be glorified both in you and through you as you sow seeds of peace and righteousness in your lives. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to you for this Reminder this challenge that when we look around and we see the disputes and the discouragements around us, that oftentimes when we think about what causes them, we need to look in the mirror. And we need to deal with our own sin. We need to humble ourselves before you and before others and confess that sin before you. That we can have peace with you restored first and foremost before we then seek peace with others. And Father, we just pray that you would so richly and abundantly bless us, even this congregation of your people, with peace. With this commitment to daily rely upon your your grace and engage in this battle against sin within us. And that as we pursue that peace with one another, as we seek to love you first and foremost, and as we seek to love one another, that others would see that we are truly your disciples. And that it would pique their interest. And that they would come to see the peace and the unity and the love that we have for you and for one another. And that you might truly draw them in. And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord. We pray that you would be working this out, especially again in our own hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. We pray that you would fully equip us to be faithful witnesses for your glory as we seek to be godly examples in this world. We pray, Father, that you would help us to display that peace to all those around us for your glory, honor, and praise. We pray these things in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.